the ability for fintech players around the world to really make a dent in the industry and to fundamentally reimagine you know, what financial services should look like. Yeah, and bringing more people you know, into the financial ecosystem, which again, in, even in you know, more mature fintech markets, you know, like the UK and like the US, is still a massive, massive issue. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Fintech Leaders Podcast, where we learn from today's global leaders in fintech business and beyond. Coming to you from New York City, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. My guest today is Jeff Tyson, partner and head of the global fintech practice at Bain & Company, where he advises incumbent players, large fintechs, and some of the top venture capital funds on helping them build products, strategy, and figuring out what's next in the fintech world. In this episode, we discuss opportunities and challenges of neobanks and how some of the largest players around the world are adapting to a new reality where capital is a lot more expensive, profitability is imperative to build a sustainable business, but their opportunities for disruption are as big as ever. Tech strategy for incumbents and how some of the largest banks in the world are modernizing by partnering with modern fintechs while also transforming their organizations from within, why embedded finance is one of the topics Jeff is most excited about, and how this will bring a fundamental shift to the industry, and just a lot more. I hope you enjoy this great conversation with Jeff Tyson from Bain, all the way from London, England. All right, Jeff, welcome to the FinTech Leaders Podcast. How's it going, man? Where, where are you calling from? Uh, thank you so much, Miguel. I'm calling from a rather uh, cloudy and miserable London at the moment. Sounds uh, like every day in London. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, about 360 days a year and then five days of sunshine. <laughs> well, Jeff, I'm, I'm glad uh, we're, we're talking. Thanks for, for taking the time. I appreciate it. Uh, We've we've chatted in the past, and you know, massive respect for for what you do, and 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 you know, the the the. I'm excited for the point of view of fintech that you're gonna bring, in particular in this uh, interesting times that we're going through. Um, but maybe first, tell us a bit about yourself, and and tell us uh, uh, why is fintech excited and, and and looking at the industry, at the fintech industry. <laughs> Yeah, sounds good, and, and thank you so much for having me, Miguel. I'm a, I'm a big fan, so I'm, I'm delighted you know, to be here today and uh, talk about the wonderful world of fintech. Um, I mean, just by way of introduction, so you know, Jeff Day is a partner based in our, uh, our London office at Bain & Company, and I have the, the pleasure and privilege of leading our fintech practice globally. And what that basically means is that you know, I, I effectively get to do all the cool and exciting stuff that we do as an organization, and there's, there's a lot of cool and exciting stuff that we do. And there's really you know, three types of clients that, you know, that my team focuses on um, you know, in common place, trying to make sense of what's going on you know, in this space. Um, you know, all the way through to helping build you know, a new digital bank, a new platform, a new proposition. And then you know, we do a ton of work with you know, some of the biggest names in, uh, in the fintech space and really helping them to you know, basically figure out what's next. Uh, so we, we often call it full potential. So the business is here now. You want to get to there. What does the journey look like? What are the levers for growth? 
you know, that are really going to allow you to take the business to the next level. And then what many people don't necessarily know, Miguel, is that you know, we're also the, the go-to for many of the world's leading investors. So last year, we were involved in about 80% of all the top fintech deals globally. And what that means is that you know, we don't just get to work with many of the world's leading investors. We also get to do a lot of work you know, with our portfolio companies. Um, so from an investor perspective, you know, we do a lot of work around commercial diligence, helping them to assess your particular targets, particular markets. But then we also do a lot in the what we call post-acquisition space. Uh, so once they've made the acquisition, then again, working with some of the portfolio companies you know, to figure out you know, what's next, uh, which is, uh, so I feel incredibly fortunate you know, to have the ability to work with you know, such a diverse uh, diverse range of, uh, of clients. Um, before joining Bain, so I joined Bain uh, at the start of last year. Uh, before joining Bain, I spent uh, about three years building and running the consulting business for 11FS. And again, you'll feel you know, incredibly proud and privileged to have had the ability to, to go and do that, uh, work with some incredibly smart and talented people, and do some incredibly exciting stuff you know, in different parts of, uh, of the world. And then yeah, I've had the pleasure of working with some of the biggest financial institutions in the world, uh, have worked in you know, pretty much every single continent. Uh, so pre-COVID, you know, I was often on a, on a plane nonstop, so it's nice that you know, that, um, you know, that time is, uh, is slowly starting to return because I, I do actually, you know, the international aspects you know, of my job. And again, having, you know, having the ability to work with so many different players in, you know, LATAM and, and the Americas and the Middle East and, you know, the list goes on and on and on. And, you know, the, the thing that really gets me up in the morning is, you know, I, I love building stuff. Right? So I love building teams. I love building businesses. I love building platforms. So, you know, I've had the, the pleasure of uh, helping to establish a number of digital banks in various parts of the world. Um, but this is also working with you know, some of the biggest financial institutions globally to really help drive you know, some of their innovation efforts. And then if we go back, I mean, I originally started my career as a, as a private banker. So I was born in, in Holland. Uh, started my career as a private banker back in the days at, uh, at ABN Emerald when ABN was still one of the world's you know, leading organizations and then worked with you know, so many other Dutch banks. And then, as I said, you know, moved, to, uh, moved to London about 12 years ago now. But I've worked in Hong Kong. I've worked in the Middle East. So, again, it's, uh, it's very, very nice that those times have returned. And then you know, to answer your question, I mean, what, why is Bain excited about fintech? I think you know, the, the reason why, why I'm excited about fintech is the same reason why Bain is excited about fintech. Because, you know, even though, you know, there's obviously record sums of money, you know, being invested, well, at least, you know, in the past, you know, couple of years. Let's see how it goes in, uh, you know, in the next, you know, in the next couple of years. But there's just so much potential, you know, for fintech to, you know, fundamentally not only disrupt, you know, the existing financial services sector, but to just fundamentally reimagine what financial services should be. And, you know, therefore, I'm not surprised that investors, you know, have been and continue to be incredibly bullish you know, about this sector um, because there are so many inefficiencies. You know, we still have a massive you know, population that is unbanked and, and underbanked. And, you know, in many markets around the world, uh, you know, both the retail market and the, the SME markets has basically been dominated by, you know, typically four to five players. Uh, so the opportunity for, yeah, new players to come in and just fundamentally challenge you know, not just the incumbent players, but, but you know, again, look at just a fundamentally different way of doing things you know, and to provide a significantly better customer experience. You really focus on you know, what are those customer needs that are underserved and overcharged and how do you build a better proposition around that? And that yeah, is, is one of several reasons why, why I'm personally super excited about this space, but and also from a Bain perspective, I mean, you know, when I joined the business at the start of last year, we were already doing yeah, a lot of exciting work in this space. 
But that, I mean, fintech for us is such a massive, massive business and an absolutely booming business uh, as well. And this is not just from an investor perspective, given all the work that we do and you know, the dominant position that we have in that space, but also from an incumbent perspective. And I've, I've definitely seen you know, a change in, in, in perspective you know, and mindset and approach you know, when it comes to incumbents looking at you know, the opportunities that fintech provides you know, to their organization. Uh, but a lot of them you know, still struggle. And again, yeah, um, there's a lot of, of opportunity for growth, you know, both for fintech players and new banks around the world, but also for incumbents really looking to, you know, to radically transform the organization. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I guess we should talk about that. Uh, we should talk about you know, the, the moment where, where we are today, which is fintechs and neobanks, you know, they've been extremely well capitalized for a long time. And, you know, of course, using this word just to try to, you know, disrupt the incumbents. But that, those times are, are over, safe to say that. Um, so companies are going to have to do more with less. Um, I guess that also means, you know, the... Um, Bain might be a little bit busier uh, these days. I mean, what 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 kind of uh, what what are you hearing from your clients, and and you know what what kind of work do you think is going to be done over the next uh, year or two? Um, from an incumbent perspective, you mean, or from a from a neo banking perspective? From a neo banking perspective, yeah, I think the the you know the, the challenge, and you know, we're doing we're doing a ton of work, you know, with a variety of neo banks in in different parts of the world, and. The a lot of that is inbound, right? So it's it's them, you know, coming to us either directly or or you know, via one of their investors. And yeah, you know, I'd say that eighty to ninety percent of new banks around the world all face a similar challenge. So I think it's you know it's fun, yeah. And don't get me wrong, I think it's fantastic that so many new banks around the world have managed to gain millions and millions of customers. And it also shows you the opportunity, right? And also, I mean, I said this to someone the other day. I think if um, if customers would be perfectly satisfied with the services that they were getting from their incumbent bank, we would not see millions of players, you know, millions of consumers and businesses around the world you know, signing up to new banks and adopting you know, a variety of different fintech solutions. Right? But the, the challenge that many new banks around the world have is, is effectively the same. So how do I better monetize my existing customer base? How do I drive your know, RPUs, average revenue per user? You know, how do I deal with you know, increasing levels of churn. Um, you know, what's my plan around? You know, for a fair few new banks, uh, customer acquisition costs you know, have gone up quite significantly. How, how do I effectively change that? Uh, especially considering the fact that you know many customers are very very sticky. I mean, you know, the the account switching service rates you know, here in the UK, and that's just one indicator, but you know, it's single digit percentage. Right? So you, you need to come up with something you know, pretty special you know, to really differentiate yourself in a market that is is super competitive is you know, deeply penetrated. And again, you know, in many markets, it's still dominated by, by the big banks. Right? And you know, of course, for, you know, for many new banks around the world, the, one of the key challenges is, you know, what's my plan around product diversification that allows me to work towards revenue diversification, which then allows me to work towards sustainable profitability? And I've always said that you know, if, you're, if you're largely reliant on interchange as your main source of income, you're not necessarily building a sustainable business. And therefore, I'm also not surprised that you know, a lot of new banks, of course, you know, started making moves into lending and have started making moves into the SME space uh, because there's a bigger, you know, bigger revenue pool you know, to go after. And if you look at you know, how the majority of incumbent banks make money, it's not necessarily off of you know, interchange, right? It's, it's their lending book and it's mortgages. And but again, you need to think very, you know, very carefully about you know, even if you were to move into those areas, what is going to set us apart? 
And I do think there's a massive opportunity for you know, for banks, you know, to to differentiate by you know, by being more of a values led business uh, that really allows you to stand out you know, in in that market. And I think yeah, I would not be surprised that I mean, last time I checked, there were a couple of hundred new banks around the world. Now, do I think that every single one of them will survive? No. Do I think we'll see a fair amount of consolidation happening in the market? Yes. Do I think we'll see you know, a fair bit of you know, convergence happening? Where again, if you look at yeah, take the UK market as an example. If you look at you know, the the big incumbents here, there's not necessarily a massive difference. If you look at you know their their, their product offering and their service offering, yeah, I think you're sort of seeing the same thing happen with you know, a fair few new banks around the world, and especially considering the fact that many of them are going after the same set of customers. Right? Again, you need to think very carefully about what is going to set you apart, and it needs to go way beyond you know, just a, a sexy looking app and you know, a better customer experience. Right. So there's there's a fair few things that these guys need to work through, but from a personal perspective, I am still super bullish um, yeah, about the neo banking space, and I do think that many of these businesses have a, a fantastic opportunity to make a real dent you know, in the industry and change that dominant position that incumbent players have had for many many years. Yeah, yeah, and and speaking of incumbents, do you find that they're more worried about their tech strategy than they were? say pre-pandemic have you seen real change uh, coming from them or you know or, or not really yeah no absolutely i think you know for the majority of banks if you look at their incumbent banks it is if you look at their i mean just look at things like their cost to income ratio <laughs> for for a fair few yeah that cost to income ratio is still significantly high despite yeah years and years of so-called digital transformation efforts well to really you know, drive simplification and you know move parts of their business onto the cloud and you know, reduce costs, you know, and, and, and. and I think a lot of organizations have come to the conclusion that you know, their existing stack just is no longer fit for purpose you know, for this, this fast-paced environment that we live in uh, and having the ability to rapidly respond to new trends and developments you know, in the market. And I think if you look at you know, the, the modern banking players that have popped up in recent years, obviously you know, a lot of them are doing very, very well and you know, they're winning. I mean, they're signing up you know, large banks, right? You look at you know, the, the the thought machines of the world. I think it's you know, again you're not you're no longer doing you know, just greenfield banks that incumbents are building on the side. You're, you're helping some of the largest financial institutions in the world to fundamentally transform their organization. And the same applies to the Tenexes and the members of the world. So, so we're seeing a ton of activity you know, happening on that front. And you know, obviously, you know, given all the work that we do with many of the world's you know, leading banks, you know, this is a topic that consistently comes up, and this goes way beyond. Yeah, let's say technology transformation and, and you're replacing your core. You know, a big part of the discussion is also about skills and capabilities. Right? And to what extent are we actually geared up to, you know, to really drive innovation at pace and at scale across the organization? Right? So if you and I were to come into the office on a Monday morning with a bright idea, yeah, how long does it actually take you, you know, to, to go and launch that to millions of customers? Right? And this is, of course, the advantage that you know, many new banks have because if you look at their you know, the cost of running the business yeah, is typically anywhere from 30 to 70% lower, you know, depending on how you built you know, your, your stack, uh, which gives you the ability to be you know, a lot more nimble, a lot more flexible, and you know, just, just be able to respond to new trends and developments in the markets so much faster uh, compared to how incumbent players typically work. Uh, so again, you were spending a ton of time uh, with incumbent players, really helping them to understand, okay, how does your organization effectively need to change from a ways of working perspective, from a capabilities perspective, you know, to be able to to address it? Again, that goes way beyond you know, just 
simply replacing your core and you know thinking that that is going to resolve you know, all of your issues. Yeah, and Jeff, so switching gears a little bit, we caught up a few weeks ago and one of the topics you were mentioning uh, that you're seeing a lot these days is uh, embedded finance. Um, that, that has been a concept that's been around for a while, but it seems to be catching on more and more this day. So, so maybe uh, let's dig in a little bit of that and, and what are you seeing specifically on embedded fintech, embedded finance? Yeah, I think from a, from a personal perspective, it's probably one of the, you know, the topics that I'm the most excited about. And I do think that embedded finance will fundamentally you know, change the financial services landscape you know, in the next you know, couple, of, couple of years or, or decades even. And, you know, even though, you know, the concept of, you know, embedded finance, I mean, I've spoken to a lot of people who say, well, you know, white labeling has been around for ages and isn't this just the same? No, it's not. Well, I think it's, yeah, embedded finance is fundamentally different. And I mean, we're actually just about to publish a report, which we've been working on with Matt Harris and uh, the team at Bank Capital Ventures, basically the, the definitive industry body on embedded finance. Um, so watch out for that. And uh, again, that should go live in the next, in the next couple of weeks. And as part of that work, you know, we spoke to about 50 of the leading players in this space you know, to really talk about you know, what do they see as the biggest opportunity? You know, what are some of the sectors they focus on? What's the size of the market? What's the size of the price? Uh, how are they positioning themselves? And you know, what's the opportunity both for banks and, you know, let's say, pure embedded finance players in, in this space? And we're also seeing a ton of interest from you know, a variety of banks around the world who you know, see embedded finance as a really, really exciting opportunity. And the discussion that you know, I typically have with you know, executives who are looking at this is they, they see embedded finance as an opportunity to you know, effectively turn a cost center into a profit center. And we're also seeing a ton of non-FS players who are very, very excited about embedded finance. You know, retailers, for example, yeah, e-commerce players who see embedded finance effectively as an opportunity to really diverse your revenue and you know, increase loyalty you know, with their customer base. Uh, and also, yeah, it gives them the ability to really own your know, customer privacy. And yeah, I'm sure many of your listeners will be familiar with you know, Angela Strange's and you know, partner Andreessen Horowitz talk about you know, every company will become a fintech company, but has the ability to become a fintech company if they decide For, to do Former guest. <laughs> there you go. And I very much agree with that. Right? And yeah, I think as a, as a non-FS player, having the, the ability to embed your financial products and services into that, you know, that customer journey at you know, the point of uh, you know, the point of need is something that, yeah, again, I think will fundamentally you know, transform uh, the landscape. But also, I mean, if you look at the banking sector today, right, you know, financial products are typically distributed, by, distributed uh, and produced by banks. Right? In this new embedded finance world, you've got a variety of different players that you can effectively turn to that you know, will allow you to um, you know, to provide financial products and services you know, to your customers. And you know, with the, the economics effectively being shared you know, between multiple parties as opposed to you know, banks effectively controlling that entire value chain front to back. Right? And yeah, again, if you and I wanted to you know, move into lending or move into embedded insurance or whatever it may be, also, the, the ability for us to do that in a, in a very, very you know, quick and relatively easy way, as opposed to going through you know, months and months of procurement discussions, you know, that is, is effectively readily available. So again, if you and I wanted to build a, neutral, a new digital bank or a fintech business or whatever it might be, embedded finance just gives us the opportunity to do that 
you know, in a much more you know, efficient, convenient, you know, faster, cheaper way uh, compared to you know, what we uh, what we saw previously. And um, the the thing that I'm really curious about is you know, who's who's actually going to win in this space. I, I don't necessarily think it's a winner takes all markets, and I, I do think that we'll see a variety of different players who will be very very successful in this space. Uh, I think the U.S. market, you know, as things stand, is you know, is more mature uh, than um, you know, than the European market, for example, and, and various other parts of uh, of the world. And of course, we've seen a lot of you know, embedded finance businesses you know, popping up in um, you know in the past couple of years. They're doing really really well, right? and you know, all built on modern technology. Uh, so I, uh, again, I do think that uh, it's uh, it's by far one of the the topics that I'm the most excited about. Who do you think is gonna? be the the biggest beneficiary out of this this technology is it companies like marketplaces maybe um obviously it sounds like this this is convenient and good for for the consumer at least it can be um but you know who is most likely to benefit out of this yes it's, it's a great question i think you know marketplaces and and, and platforms more generally uh, so w- w- where do customers spend a lot of time uh, and then, how do you use your know, different forms of embedded finance to you know, to really you know, drive engagement and drive loyalty and create that you know, that, that that stickiness? I think that is where you know, I see you know, the biggest opportunity for embedded finance. And I think, therefore, I'm not surprised that your know, retailers and your know, other large platforms you know, are all actively looking at embedded finance if they haven't already moved into the space. Uh, so the Shopify's of the world you know, are you know, probably one of the best you know, examples uh, uh, out there. But same with your know, MindBody and your know, various other you know, non-FS players who, uh, again, I think are doing some really, really exciting stuff in this space. But we're only just getting started. Right? And again, you know, that is one of the things that I'm super excited about because even though everyone is talking about embedded finance, you know, everyone says this is a, a multi-trillion you know, opportunity. There's a lot of money flowing into many of these embedded finance businesses. But the reality is that we're only just getting started. Um, so I'm, I'm very curious to see how this space is going to play out in the next couple of years. You know, to what extent will banks be able to position themselves as, as a leader in the embedded finance space? Because you know, ultimately, I think there's a fair bit that needs to happen in order for banks to, to really be successful in this space. Because you can't just you know, suddenly open up your existing platform to a variety of other players. You need to think through you know, what are some of the implications from a risk and compliance perspective, you know, for example, um, so that is a, is a challenge that we often come across in the conversations that you know, the work that we're doing with, with a variety of incumbents. But ultimately, I do think that you know, banks, you know, if, if they tackle this correctly, it is a massive, massive opportunity for them to, you know, again, really open up a whole new revenue stream for the organization. So let's talk a bit about what's going on in the market. You know, the markets have almost capitulated. There's been a huge collapse. And, and private markets are also hurting um, investors. I'm, I'm seeing you know, almost uh, are kind of frozen, particularly growth investors and, and even Series A, Series Bs are, are still, you know, being affected. And then they're, they're pretty slow these days. They're smaller. Valuations are suffering. How do you think is going to play out over the next 18 months? Because I think you have the benefit of talking to all parties. You, you, you're, you're working with investors you're working with the fintechs, right? And you're also working with, with the banks and kind of you're seeing the public in the private side. Yeah, it's the million dollar question, right? And um, if you look at, again, this isn't just fintech that's affected. I mean, I think you know, technology stocks in general, yeah, 
are obviously down. Uh, so it's not just fintech that has been that has been affected. And you know, what you obviously typically see is that you know, when public markets go down, you know, typically private markets you know, follow shortly after. And if you look at, I mean, last time I checked, um, you know, fintech markets you know, were, were down. So those companies that have, comp- I mean, you know, look at last year. Like, so fintech companies that went public last year, I think on average, you know, they lost uh, about, so those that went public via SPAC lost about 40% you know, on average in value. Those that went public via IPO lost about 35% in value. I think the markets at the moment are down around you know, 50 plus percent. You know, NASDAQ is down nearly 30%. And I mean, rather unsurprisingly, if you look at what's happening from a broader macroeconomic perspective, you know, investors are just getting more cautious. Uh, I mean, everyone is curious as to whether or not you know, we're going to see a proper recession. And um, you know, many fintech businesses haven't necessarily gone through a proper recession. Right? And also, I think when you look at you know, the valuation of, of some businesses, you, know, you could argue whether or not you know, those valuations were realistic. I do think that you know, there's a bunch of companies out there where you know, there was a lot of, let's say, future growth built into uh, the current valuation of, uh, of the company. I do think, though, that, you know, and, and slightly controversial opinion, uh, Miguel, but I do think that for the sector, so for the fintech sector as a whole, it's not necessarily a bad thing because it does force you know, every single company out there to really think about you know, what is our path to sustainable profitability. Yeah. To what extent you know, are we geared up for success, you know, not just in the short term, but also in the long term to really you know, not just survive, but really thrive? And you know, again, as we've discussed before, I think if you're largely reliant on interchange as your main source of income, you're not building a sustainable business. Right? So a lot of these businesses now really need to figure out you know, what is my, my, my plan around product diversification, you know, therefore revenue diversification, therefore uh, sustainable profitability. But taking a bit of a step back and really thinking about the foundation of the company, you know, the underlying unit economics, right, um, and making sure you've got a you've got a clear you know, a clear path you know, towards future growth in a very very competitive market. Again, you know, <laughs> it isn't necessarily a bad thing. I'm curious to see how this space is going to play out. And again, looking at um, you, you, you could have almost seen this coming, right? If you look at the the amount of money that was being invested. Your last year, and then some of the crazy valuations that we were effectively seeing. But again, on one end, it reflects your know, investors being very, very bullish. You know, on the other hand, uh, again, it does mean that you know, if you're you know, a fintech founder, yeah, you need to think very carefully about you know, where, where, where do we go from here. Right? So again, overall, well, we haven't necessarily. I think what's interesting is that we haven't necessarily seen a massive slowdown. I, I do think that you know, there's a lot of investors at the moment who are just taking stock of their your existing uh, portfolio and the companies you know, in uh, in, the, in their existing portfolio, and what are we going to do with those businesses before we write another you know, two, three, four, five hundred million dollar check? But you know, again, I think overall, you know, if you take a step back, it's not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah, this is uh, we're living through 2021's massive hangover. <laughs> so, uh, Jeff. Before I let you go, leave us with some optimism. What, what has you the most excited uh, for the next few years for fintech specifically? Yes, as I mentioned earlier, I think yeah, I'm I'm super bullish yeah about this space, and I I I do think that you know, the ability for fintech players around the world to really make a dent in the industry and to fundamentally reimagine you know, what financial services should look like 
you know, and bringing more people you know, into the financial ecosystem, which again, in, even in you know, more mature fintech markets, you know, like the UK and like the US, is still a massive, massive issue. And you know, again, the, the ability for, uh, you know, whether that's new banks or payment players or you know, wealth players or insurance, whatever it may be, because again, you know, this is the exciting thing, right? You've got so many players attacking effectively every part of the financial services value chain. So there isn't necessarily one thing that 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 really stands out for me. Uh, you still see a ton of money flowing into you know into fintech, uh, sorry, into uh, into the payments space. And if you look at the top ten or top twenty uh, fintech players around the world, there's a fair few payments businesses out there. But again, you know, there's still so many inefficiencies you know in the payment space, both on the consumer side as well as on you know, on on the business side. And then uh, I think one thing that you know, again I'm personally very excited about is the infrastructure side of things and embedded finance and banking services is one example of that. But I think the next wave of innovation that you will see in this space is, is on the infrastructure side because yeah, there's a ton of fintech businesses out there that are effectively still built on yeah, infrastructure that is you know, 20, 30, 40 years old. Right? So the ability to really innovate around the infrastructure side of things, I think will unlock a whole new wave of, uh, of, uh, yeah, of innovation and I think we'll see a lot of new exciting businesses you know, popping up in uh, in the years to come. And typically, again, you know, based on the conversations that you know, we're having with investors, they are still super bullish about this space. They all take a longer term perspective. You know, these things happen, right? Uh, you know, if <laughs> if you look at you know what's been happening for many many decades, again, I think yeah, everything that we're going through now, you know, is something that many investors around the world are used to. Right. Yeah, many founders are used to, especially you know, founders you know, for which this is their you know, their second or their third uh, company. So again, it is very, very important to you know, take a longer term perspective. Uh, and um, but overall, you know, uh, again, fintech isn't going to go anywhere. Uh, and if anything, I think the next you know, couple of years, even though you know, we are seeing a bit of a a bit of a dip, you know, in terms of you know, the, the the whole funding environment, that's not going to go anywhere. Yeah, I think it's important to remember, like you said, that it's a it's an industry with some massive inefficiencies, in some cases oligopolistic environments, particularly emerging markets, and it's 10, 20, and sometimes more of a percentage of the GDP. So it's a huge chunk. Uh, but Jeff, thank you so much for for joining fascinating stuff coming all the way from London. Uh, and uh, I'm sure the audience is going gonna, is gonna to enjoy it. So thanks. Thanks again. Thank you so much uh, for having me, Miguel. Uh, always a pleasure to speak to you. Thanks for tuning in. And I hope you enjoyed this episode with Jeff, Global Head of FinTech at Bain & Company. If you want more interviews, make sure to subscribe, follow, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever you get your shows. It helps and truly means a lot. As always, I want to extend a very special thank you to the great editor, Rafael Ostria, for his amazing work behind the scenes. Signing off till next week, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. <laughs>